Would you raise your hand? We have a few dads in the room. I want everyone to find a dad. Can you, can you keep your hand up and go ahead and find a dad, okay? Stand up, find a dad. Find a dad. There's two dads back there. There's a dad. There's three dads here. There's a dad here. My dad over there. One dad over there. Benedict's a dad in the back. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna share dad jokes. No, I'm just kidding. Um, what I want our dads to do is to describe. Listen up! Listen up! So we're gonna describe what it's like to love your kiddo as a dad, and how that how it is different than loving other people in your life. Okay, so everyone, listen to the dad you're with. And have them, if, if you're a dad, please describe how it's unique to love your kids versus your wife or a friend. Does that make sense? I'm a dad, but I'm going to talk later. Sorry. All right, you guys have a few minutes. All right, so I've been a dad since 2016 when Nina was pregnant. And... Um, I've been thinking about how to describe dad love for a long time because um, it's very difficult to explain. One of the best ways that I, I speak of it is how um, I've never, I've always looked forward to falling in love with a girl, right? I, I've had so many dreams and thoughts about what that would be like. From, from preschool, I felt I really loved this girl named Allison. You guys remember the story? We played house. I kissed her. I thought we'd have two sons because Alice's son and Will's son, right? And then every year, I liked another girl. Like in third grade, I liked this girl named Carrie, and I chased her around the playground. And junior high, uh, I can't use names anymore because they're still my friends. But anyways, I liked, I liked all these other all these other uh, girls growing up. And I always, man, I just couldn't wait to hold her hand, to take her to coffee, to listen to her, to see her smile, and, and what it would look like to, have, to uh, get married, brush your teeth together in the morning. But I had never dreamt about loving a child, you know? Like, I knew I wanted kids, and I thought, man, I'm going to fall in love with my li- wife, and I'm, and I'm going to like my kid like I like my puppy, I guess it'll be kind of similar. But this whole category of falling in love with Liam, my son, it felt like I was totally blindsided by a category of love that was as potent, as addicting, as, as um, intoxicating um, as falling in love with Nina. And there's just these moments where I stare at him and I'm like, I feel everything I felt for my wife. You know, those same like emotions that overtake you for this girl that you fell in love with or this guy, it feels like so similar, so powerful. And I just, and I think why it was even more significant for me was because I did not see that coming. I didn't see it coming. And then there's this purity to loving your child where um, there's no agenda, like there's nothing you want from them or you, you, there's nothing you gain from them. And that's so unique to all these other relationships. Even with my parents, even with my wife and my close friends, it feels reciprocal. But with Liam, it's this generous love 
and without, I don't want anything from him. I just want him to do well. And, and it so resembles God's heart for us. But when you have someone you love that much, um, another person described it as, it's like your heart getting ripped out of you, and then you have to watch it cross the street and tumble off of a bed, you know, and play with dogs. And I'm like, oh my gosh, my heart is playing with the dog. Well, I'll bite into it. And, um, and, and there's this vulnerability. I, I remember walking around, you know, in my mid-20s without a kid, and I just felt so invincible. And I, I would be like walking down the street and I, I, I just felt totally fearless, right? Like someone could be mad at me and I would be like, whatever, I'll beat you up. Or, you know, walking down the street, I'm on my phone, I don't care. But now I'm crossing like Imperial to get the Starbucks with my son. I'm just like, okay, cars, you know? And Nina's like the car Nazi where she'll just yell at cars if they don't stop before the line. Because all of us, we don't want our heart to get ran over. And we also think about these like worst case scenarios. I remember one of our little ones was running around and, and the dad's like, I don't know where my daughter is. And as a father, immediately both of us are envisioning the five worst things get, that can happen, right? I know all of you parents understand. Like the most probable thing is the worst thing when you can't see your kid or when you're watching your kid dry, uh, climb up the stairs. And once in a while, me and Nina, like we'll just talk about, man, if we lost Liam, we just went to Disneyland with him, and uh, Tony and Tanya invited us. We, ha- we brought a leash. We're that parent now, you know? Uh, we didn't use it, but we, we had it on us in case it was busy. And uh, I wanted, like, a sloth that hangs on his back with, like, a tail, you know, because I think that's super cute. Like, you're holding a tail that's, that's the sloth holding your child, but it's just a leash. <laughs> Looks like a dog leash. And... Um, but it's like, I'm, I'd rather have that than just be horrified about losing Liam. And, and, and if we had ever lost Liam, me and Nia said, we would, just, we would just stop everything. You know, everything would come to this halt. She would quit her job. I would quit Renew. And we would just spend as long as it took to find our kid. I mean, that's really every parent's worst nightmare is losing their child. And we would just, I mean, every, every parent out there would just stop all of life and they would, they would look for their kid. They would enlist everyone to go find their child. They would call the police. They would hire people. And, you know, when I think about God's heart for us, that's, that's what I see. I see a father who is longing to bring all of his offspring home, you know, who's desperate, who's grieving, who, who's doing and has done everything in his power outside of violating our will to choose for us to come home. And when we think about the mission of Jesus, isn't that what defines his whole journey to earth is to look for us like a father who's lost his son. You know, that's what Luke 15 describes, this woman who lost her coin, like a tenth of her wealth and savings. Of course, she's going to go and look for it. Uh, A shepherd who loses a sheep, of course, he goes and looks for it. And then a, 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 a father whose son walks away and he sits at home every day longing for his son to come home. And that's Jesus just revealing this heart of the father saying he's here and this whole human story 
including Jesus coming to earth, is all about bringing his kids home. It's all about wanting us to be in a loving relationship with him and wanting us to find safety and security and be a part of his family. And so we see Jesus do that over and over again. When you look at the start of his ministry in Matthew chapter 4, we have him give his mission statement. What is he doing? What is his life about? What is he living for? And it says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 32, Uh, 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And right away, we see him do these two things, proclaim the good news of the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, it's the Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about what it looks like to be a part of God's family And, and, and this kingdom culture that he's creating and he's inviting people to be a part of his kingdom, to be a part of his family. And then in chapters um, eight and nine, he does the second part. He doesn't just speak and teach about the kingdom. He displays the kingdom's power. This is a kingdom that advances. This is a kingdom that spreads and invades darkness. And he goes and he heals diseases. He uh, heals sicknesses. He raises the dead. And, and like two bookends, or um, he says the same thing at the end of chapter 9. After he's preached a sermon on a mount, um, healed people, the woman who's bleeding, raised uh, a girl from the dead, healed a man of leprosy, forgave another man as he asked him to pick up his mat and walk. He, it, it bookends at the end of these episodes in uh, Matthew chapter 9. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching their synagogues, proclaiming, again, the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. But then chapter 10 has a transition point. He says, as you go, right? It's not Jesus went like it was in verse 23 of 4 or 35 of 9. In chapter 10, it says, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. You have received. Freely you have received. Freely give. And so Jesus in chapter 10 is doing something extremely important. He is handing his mission to his disciples. He's saying you're not supposed to just be fans or audience members or Um, you know, put likes on my posts. You are to partake in the mission that I have. And I think about Dr. Ken with all of his fellows, right? Learning under him as a GI surgeon. And, And they're not just watching him and applauding. They're not just saying, hey, great, great precision there, Dr. Ken, A plus, you know? What are, what's he doing? He's imparting his knowledge so that one day they'll do what he's doing. That's the hope. And I, I think about myself, I wanted to uh, plant a church. We planted a church together three and a half years ago. So I went to this church planting class with Dr. Ray Chang. And I learned from his class. And then he invited me to work at his church for four and a half years. And I took the class three more times. And now um, four, four and a half years with Pastor Ray being mentored by him, having him explain his churching, church planting process, participating in Ambassador Church. Um, it was for the purpose of me doing what he taught me to do. 
So when we think about what it means to be Christian, is it just kind of seeing Jesus' life and applauding him? Is it just understanding the Bible and what it says? Or is it imitating and following the steps of Jesus? When we think about our life mission statement as a believer, is it similar to what other people are living for? You know, I want a house, I want a car, I want my kids to be paid for as they go through uh, college, I want a secure life. Or has following Jesus and seeing how he's lived and what his priorities are transformed how we live and what our priorities are? He's saying to each of us who are saying we want to follow him that this is my mission statement, to proclaim the kingdom and to allow people to experience his power. Will you do that as well? Will you feel the heart I feel for others? that my kids are lost. I found you to find others, and there's nothing else. Um, I think oftentimes when we go into being Christian, we think about your kingdom come, your will be done, but we just kind of grab that second part, your will be done, and then we, we twist it and says, it's actually about my will being done, right? How does God fit into the trajectory of my life, my purposes to make my life easier? But God's saying, how am I, how, if you want um, your prayers and your life to have purpose, align it to this mission statement. And so maybe in the most simplistic way, is this what we're living for? Um, When we see Jesus live with his purpose, are we willing to say and receive chapter 7 or chapter 10 verse 7 as you go Do what I did in your life. So we're going to look at um, these verses from verse 5 to verse 16. And um, what I think about here is is kind of like sitting down for an NBA Finals game, right? And, And being able to lean over the shoulders of these great basketball heroes, Jordan, Kobe, Duncan, and listen to my favorite coaches, Uh, Popovich is like one of my favorite coaches of all time. If I were to ever get courtside seats, that would be the reason. I mean, I would love to see, like, get sweat, like, you know, doused on me by Curry. But more so, I want to lean in and hear some of these legendary coaches draw up plays for for a game-winning shot to win a series, right? You're down by three. Who's going to hold the ball? How are they going to make it happen? And here we get to lean in um, in Jesus is gathering his disciples for the first mission trip in human history. The seeding of the greatest movement that we've ever seen. Two billion people reached around the world by 12 in 2,000 years. And we're leaning in and we're hearing the play that Jesus is drawing up for his disciples. Now, in the same way, if I were to listen to some of these great coaches drop this play, 
even, even though I, I have this great play in front of me, I'm not going to run this play every time, right? If I was a basketball coach, I'm like, dude, I heard Phil Jackson run this play. We're going to run it every single game, every single play. No, I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to pull principles from this brilliant mind to apply to my coaching. Does that make sense? So in the same way, as we go through this text, we hear things that Jesus is telling just his disciples for just kind of that play. Um, in which he wants them to enact for their mission trip. But from that, we get to draw great principles of how we are to uh, live this mission statement in our lives. So we see it kind of right on the front end, where Jesus sends out his 12 with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles, but enter every town of the, or, or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of God has come near. And so in their context, in this play that Jesus is running, uh, specifically for his disciples for that, ta- for that moment, he's saying to only preach and, and share about God's kingdom to the Jews. Because Jesus wanted the Jewish people to know that he's the Messiah, that he's their Messiah. And so there's all of these ancient prophecies about Jesus and about how God is going to restore all of humanity through the Jews. But this this beginnings of the Christian movement is not this offshoot religion, but deeply rooted in Jewish history and the Jewish promises that God gave to Abraham and Isaac and David. But then we see in Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, what does it say? Jesus says to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Does that make sense? So that's the broader call to all of us, whereas this is a specific play for his disciples. But one of the applications I see is, it says, as you go, preach this message. The kingdom of God has come near. I wonder where are the places that God sent us? Where are the places that he's called us to do work and to do family and to play? And I wonder what it looks like for us as we go through life to proclaim his kingdom to others. And then in verse 8, it says, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Again, everything the disciples saw Jesus do He's asking them to do as well. And I think in the same way, um, I wonder what not only are the places God has placed us, um, but the positions of power that he's given us. You know, there's this great spiritual authority that I would love our church to continue to discover. What it looks like to pray for people who are sick. What it looks like to pray for deliverance over um, mental illness. What it looks like to ask God to do something miraculous in someone's life and have the faith to do it, have the faith to pray it. And, and I think God, in my experience of praying for these big miracles, he's most interested in allowing those prayers to, to happen when he's wanting to validate his message to someone who doesn't know him, right? And that's what's happening with the disciples. He's saying, you pro- proclaim this message, but I want people to know it's true, It's not just a new philosophy. It's not just these good ethics. And people will know it's true because, and that's from God, because they'll see power that is displayed that only God can do. 
right? Only God can heal and drive out demons. So this power is to validate the proclamation. But I wonder what are the areas of power God's given us in our job, in our social circles, in, in our families? And how can we leverage those places of power so that uh, people can hear the gospel? People can hear the good news. I've asked Erwin to come up. He's here visiting. Um, and um, he's our second missionary that we've had the pleasure of sending out full time. So I've asked him to share some of this um, in his experience with us. Is that on? Yes, oh, it, is, it on. is now. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, the question, like, what are the places and uh, what positions of influence God has given you? Uh, so currently, if you don't know who I already am, my name is Erwin. I'm currently in China, or not right now, but <laughs> obviously not right now. Um, and family circumstances, I'm back for a couple of weeks, but then I'll return in a couple of weeks. Um, but I think one of the, when I think of positions and influence, uh, I really think of two things. Uh, one is right now in China, I have the opportunity to actually be in a teaching position. Um, so I, I don't know how like how much you guys have in terms of, I guess, Chinese experience. But one thing that's really big in Chinese culture is a sense of status, right? And so if you're a teacher of some sort to any group of people, you're seen as like, oh, he's like a teacher, like, you know, like, we joke about, like, watching movies where it's, like, sensei, but, like, <laughs> in a way, like, there's, there's still that, that depth, right? And so when people look at me, they're like, oh, this is Yan Like, that's, that's, this is teacher. My last name is, like, in Chinese, Yan, even though in English it's not. Um, and so, but they look at me like that, and they always refer to me as teacher Yan, teacher Irwin, teacher Yan. Um, I also think another position is being American. Uh... The immediate response when I say, oh, I'm American, is, you're American? You look like me. Like, it's like, oh, like, yeah, like, I'm, I'm family heritage and everything. But it's crazy for people to think about the fact that I'm from America. Because their thought of America is like, oh, it's the grand place. It's the place mm. to be. It's the land of freedom and individuality. Um, and for, for many people, it's like, that's where I want to be. Mm. Uh, media for them is like, America's the ish, like, for lack of better word. Um, There's better words. There are better words. (laughs) There are are many better words. (laughs) That's Um, the best word you could choose. Yeah. And (laughs) that's true. Um, But all in all, I think with both of those places and positions, you are immediately put, or at least I'm immediately put, um, in a position where people look up to what I have to say. Yeah. How did you get to leverage that? Yeah. um, so probably my most tangible that I can think of at the moment is, so there's this guy named Jack, and Jack is one of the students, even though he's about 30 years old, he's older, um, I've kind of become friends with, and one, being American, he, he always asks, oh, like, what do you think about China? Well, what do you think about our ways and our living styles? How do you compare it to the way you live? Um, he also asks, as a teacher, he, he's looking like, oh, so you must be very smart, too. So to him, I'm one, smart, so <laughs> eh, maybe. Um, and two, I have another perspective that he doesn't have yet. Mm. And so what that's happened and what that's uh, opened up is this whole conversation for us to talk about philosophy and his way of living and how he and his society choose to live. And one of the things he told me was like, 
for himself at least, he was saying, man, I, I feel like my life is, I just choose whatever I want to choose. So I like look at these philosophies and I kind of go and I like, oh, if I feel in this mood, I'll choose this one thing. Or if I feel in this mood, I'll choose another thing. Um, and because of this conversation, we, we, get a, we got to talk about like kind of moral relativism and his own rel- moral relativism. Um, how like it's really just, there's no basis. It's just based on how he feels or what he thinks. Um, and because I think of where I was in my position, I got to be like, oh, mm-hmm. like so what do you think about absolute truth? Is there such thing as an absolute truth? Is there such thing? And I think being American and being a teacher helped me actually ask him those questions because then he was open to, wow, like maybe I never thought about that. Mm. Um, I think from there actually came the opportunity to share a little bit more concretely with him uh, what I do think is absolute truth instead of just what we morally try to put together on our own. Um, and I guess that's the gospel. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Good yeah. job, Erwin. Yeah. We'll end it there. Yeah. Before the cliff. You did great. You know, uh, sometimes we feel disconnected because Erwin Ir- is in China being a missionary. But I think what, what's really cool about his experience is that we're all trying to learn how to be missionaries, um, how to think like a missionary does. And so what are the places, again, of influence, of power, because of how God made you and where he's placed you? that you can um, be able to bring someone and serve someone and love someone into his kingdom. The second thing uh, that Jesus gives in terms of his instructions, his playbook, is do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belt. No bag for your journey, no shirt or sandals or staff, for a worker is worth his keep. And I think about how, again, in this specific play, they, they were just kind of sent off with no money. But in the, in the future, when the disciples are going around to different um, towns to share the gospel after Jesus ascended, they did take money with them. And even Jesus told Peter to take a sword, right? That was really interesting to me. But, but the principle here is, when we, even if we were to take things with us, do we trust in the things or do we trust in God? And in this kind of hardcore marine training, God didn't give, us, give them that option. But when he did, I think there was a sense that Peter said, okay, even though I have a sword, I'm not trusting the sword for protection. I'm trusting the shepherd. Or even when Paul had money that he was carrying with him um, as a tent maker, he's like, I'm not really trusting my skills as a tent maker to provide. I'm trusting the Lord to provide. And I wonder in our journey, even if we're local or whether we're overseas, What are we trusting? You know, are we ultimately trusting our job to provide for for us? Are we ultimately trusting, um, you know, our security to the state? Or is the Lord allowing, are we allowing ourselves to trust the Lord? Because when we trust God, we're willing to go wherever he calls us. And when we don't trust God, we see our limitations very, very quickly. You know, one of the images I have in terms of what is hard for me to let go of, what I kind of cling on to, is my 
mattress, right? I just love my mattress so much. We spent a lot of money on my mattress and uh, when we first got married. And there's this visual as I was preparing the sermon of like, God, I'll go to China, but I have like this mattress strapped onto me, you know? Like, I'm taking my mattress with me. I'm going to go camping at Zion, but I have to tie this mattress to my, to my car before I go because I need my mattress wherever I go. And I wonder how many of the things that we need with us or whether we just need Jesus, whether Jesus is enough. And, and I think Erwin was challenged by that. So again, one more time, I invite Erwin up. And I didn't prepare any illustrations. I, he, I just had him uh, share. But I would love to hear, Erwin, about kind of your journey and how you trusted the yeah. Lord in that. Yeah. So I, I think a good amount of you have journeyed with me. And, and some of you now have, like, the opportunity to hear a little bit more about my journey and so I think for me, if you, like, my family is a first, first generation, came here, had nothing mentality. And so the, the total, their whole, like, mentality of life really is you got to make it, right? Like, you're going to be a self-made person. You're going to, like, go from nothing and be everything. Uh, that's literally how they live. And I think they still live that way. And so raising me and raising my sister, the, the, entirety of our lives is always like we're going to put everything in front of you possibly to make sure that you succeed and more so in monetary sense uh that you won't have to worry about your day-to-day checks you're gonna like buy whatever you feel like buying uh you'll have everything supplied for you'll be a self-made person um and i think one of the hardest things about knowing jesus is when you get a little bit older and you realize oh, wait, I guess, like, okay, I have all this knowledge, I have this education, um, and then you finally find yourself of, like, what am I supposed to do next? Uh, Do I go into work? You know, I went into college, like, having everything I possibly could have. I had internship experience. I had work experience. I knew that if I went to almost any company, I would get at least probably 60K out of them. Like, pretty confident uh, thinking myself out of college, Um, and I remember kind of just like, finally, maybe this is just conviction. I I felt like, okay, Lord, I need to ask you what I'm supposed to do next. Uh, do I go into this work field and go into business and have a pretty darn nice life or whatnot? I still have a nice life. Don't get me wrong. Um, (laughs) it's a two bedroom apartment. Yeah. (laughs) For one person. Heck yeah. Um, (laughs) yeah, I made it, (laughs) but, um, I think what happened, though, is when I finally asked the Lord, uh, Lord, what do I do next? I think I was similar to Peter, asked questions instead. Mm. Um, And he asked me, am I your everything? Uh, And if you know Peter, right, he asked Peter three times, do you love me? I I felt like similar. I was asked, am I your everything? Um, Mm. And I was like, well, yeah, of course, right? Of course. And then ask again, am I your everything? I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I think that third time you're like, oh, no, like, uh, maybe, maybe not. That third like, time's a trick. Yeah, third time's a trick, yeah. right? Um, but I, I think when I asked the Lord that question and he re- asked me this question back, it, it became a tangible, like, Lord, yeah, like, I don't know if I've put you as my priority, but at this moment you are challenging me to put you as my priority. And that means you are my priority. It means you are my everything. Uh, and so whatever I will do next 
whatever step that comes next, it will be for you, with you, and by you. Mm. Um, and I, I, to say no to a lot of, I guess you can say financial comforts, uh, worldly comforts, um, and to in exchange say that, yeah, like, Jesus, you're worth everything at this point um, because the finances and stuff, yeah, hopefully you'll take care of it, which he has. Um, but I wouldn't have seen it. I just would never have seen that happening that way. I don't know how else to put it. Mm. Thanks, yeah. Erwin. Appreciate you. <laughs> Made my sermon quite easy. Yeah, and again, like Erwin, there's this really clear distinction. And it's harder to feel that way here in a lot of ways. Um, but how do we continue to have this question in the forefront of our minds? In, in our daily life, in buying a home here and raising our kids here or renting an apartment to still say, um, I still trust in you. And I think there's times where we can say that and we're not sure if we mean it. But every person as we journey, God's going to test that and say, do you really trust in me over these things? Are you really surrendering your life to me over these things? Um, the last part of this passage says, Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay in their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the house is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that house or town. Shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day of judgment than for that town. So what Jesus is saying is that he's sending his disciples to different villages, different towns, and he's saying, I'm preparing people who will receive your message and who will receive you into their home and open up other people to hear your message. We call them the per- person of peace. And as we go again into our workplaces and into volleyball for me and to rock climbing, how are we searching for people as we go in in and finding people who desire the Lord. And at the same time, there's going to be people who reject the message. And what Jesus is saying is, don't call down fire from heaven, John and James. And, you know, don't get bitter. Just allow them to be, and you continue on your journey. Continue to share. Continue to talk about me. I asked Willie to come. You guys don't know him, but I play volleyball with him. And uh, just this Friday, we were chilling and he shared his testimony with me, and I thought it was incredible. And so I asked him to, I didn't prepare any illustrations. This was, a, this was the best sermon for me. Um, and um, so Willie was someone who hated people sharing and inviting him to church, right? Yeah. Like most of your life, you had this kind of three strikes rule. I did. I would, I would give somebody, I work on Sundays or I'm busy. And the third time they would invite me to church, I would let them know, and this is the nicest thing I'd ever said, uh, that their God wasn't real and never loved them. And that was the nicest thing I ever said to them. So I played volleyball with this awesome, awesome lady, Stacy, and I always knew there was something different. I I wasn't a believer for 30 years, um, and I wasn't a believer when I met her, but she kept inviting me, right? (laughs) Two times she invited me, so I tried to avoid her for, I don't know, it was probably four months I got away with her. Oh, my bad. And uh, <clears throat> I'm probably loud enough. You don't need it. But uh, <laughs> so Stacy invited me uh, two times, tried to avoid her. And then she snuck up on me. I was playing volleyball and she invited <laughs> me again. 
I was about to bite her head off, and uh, it was weird. It's like I said, uh, Stacy, I don't believe in God. She goes, not yet, and kind of hops away. <laughs> the worst people, yeah. I was livid. Because my whole life, there was no God. There, God didn't love me. God's not real. All that good stuff. And uh, I couldn't move, and she just walked away, and I'm like, well, that's weird. So uh, I experienced a significant neck injury. And I was looking at spinal surgery, and this is uh, the condensed version. In a year and three weeks, I went from, you know, being a strong man, injured my neck, six months of rehab, um, re-injured it. So I was looking at spinal surgery. So I challenged God. I Wait, cried. can you talk about, like, weightlifting? And- oh, okay. So uh, I've always been a big dude. You know, fathletic is what I call it. <laughs> um, I've never known what those little bitty weights are for. Has anybody used one of those five-pound weights? You know what I mean? When I was five years old, I was sneaking out, pumping those 25s, right, getting big, <laughs> trying to be like Arnold. But, you know, things happen. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, so yeah, uh, when I injured myself, I was using those little one-pound weights. And I, I worked from one pounds all the way up to 13. And, like, anybody who's who's – you know, works out. If you 13 times your max, you'd be pumped, right? I was horrible. I would, my workout was walking in, driving to a gym, which my boxing coach told me, if I ever find out you drive to a gym, if I'm dead, I'll come back alive and I'll beat you to death. (laughs) So I drive to the gym. I walk inside. I lift my little four pound weights or whatever I was up to 13 pounds. We'll go 13. That's what my max was. And I would do four reps. By the time I got to five, I would start crying. But you can't hold me down. I got to ten, right? So very next day, you know, I challenged God because I, I, I injured myself. Uh, I was taking a selfie with one of my mentors. We were like this. He said, oh, no, man, go like this. And moved, I mean, quarter of an inch, moved my arm. And my neck snapped. And so, you know, nobody else in the room knew I was hurting. But my wife's a nurse and my wife, so she knew. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're up in Anaheim. We live in Costa Mesa, and we're leaving the, the party, and she's like, okay, we're going to go to Hogue. I said, take me home. She said, no, you're going to Hogue. I said, no, take me home. I have a plan. Anybody that knows me, and now it's all you included, if you hear I have a plan, help her get out of the way. <laughs> it's happening. So I got her to take me home. Uh, she never, she always believed in God. I never believed in God, but I went home and I challenged God. I cried myself to sleep and I woke up healed the next day. Um, I ran to, the, I didn't believe it because I pushed myself up and I said, what the bad word? <laughs> and uh, I ran to the gym. Ish? With the ish? Yeah, ish. I ish. <laughs> yeah. I, when I heard that ish, I was like, hey, now I know I was invited. <laughs> So thank you. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Erwin. So I ran to that gym that I'd been driving to. I went to a machine and put 250 pounds on it, and I just rocked that thing. <laughs> and I ran about six miles that day. I felt like I had a brand-new body. The sun was shinier. I felt great. I'd, I've, I'd been a drug dealer and done drugs since I was a child. And I woke up, and I was like, I don't need these drugs to feel good anymore. I don't. It was just weird, man. You know, I didn't expect that. But I still tried to not give props to God. Still, right? <laughs> I'm walking in my door. And my son was three at the time. He's six now. He runs up and he jumps in my arms. And he says, Dad, God told me he's going to fix your neck. I said, he did? When did he tell you that? He said, well, when you heard it. It's been a year and three weeks. Worst year and three weeks of my life. 
And uh, so I said, well, why didn't you tell me when it hurt you, when, when I got hurt, son? He said, well, because God said you had to figure it out yourself and ask him. So from that moment forth, I knew that there's a God and that he loved me and that my whole life he's been trying to crack this hard head. <laughs> Finally got it. And so I want to encourage you guys, you know, um, my grandparents prayed for me every day for 30 years because they knew how adamant I was against God. Um, my wife, my kids, my best friends, everybody, but they kept coming with love. No matter how angry I was at them, they'd always, you know, they just loved. And there was always something weird about that Mm. to me personally. Now it's not weird. Now I understand. You can punch me in the face. I'll, I'll still tell you about Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks for sharing. Um, You know, I think about the prayer that we see in front of us is God healing you. But maybe the prayer that God sees in front of him was your grandma's prayer for 30 years. Like, that might have been the bigger prayer. You know, I, I think it's easier for God to heal a spine than it is to turn a heart. And it took you one prayer for him to do that. But thirty years, thirty years of prayer for your grandma, you know. To oh, pray. that's definitely powerful. You know, it's it's easy to turn to God when when you don't even believe in Him. Like I didn't, I didn't anything. But the faith that my grandmother has had, yeah. And she she tells me I'm a cry. She always says, "I knew it. I always knew that you would come." Wow. And uh, it was amazing. My grandfather passed uh, this past Thanksgiving, and I've never felt closer to God in my life. Mm. Talk about you, just really briefly, how you want other people to hear about Jesus after that. And, like, your roommate, right? Praying for him. Oh, yeah. He's actually right there. Oh. It's my, it's my best friend, one? Josh, right here. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's got to be in faith. It's got to be uh, just go for it. You know, when, when, when Jesus prayed, he prayed with the expectation of it's going to happen. Yeah, and no matter how big it is, one of my favorite stories I heard. Um, I go to Mariners in Huntington Beach. It's not a plug. Uh, <laughs> it's far. They all um, drive there. Too, don't, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so uh, our pastor was in a conference, and all of a sudden, you know, their huge Rick Warren conference. Everybody like everybody's you know trying to dying to get in there. Uh huh. And this pastor from China stands up and he said, "I have to go pray," and they're like. What are you doing? He said, uh, well, one of his pastors uh, had been killed because, you know, it's underground in in most places. Mm. Um, And he had to go pray to see if he had to pray to bring that guy back to life. Mm. And that's huge. What what bigger, you know, representation is there of having that faith that, well, I know it's not me, but let me go pray to see if it's God will for me to pray about raising that man. And you know that, that there's plenty of people you guys know. Does anybody here know somebody that doesn't know the Lord? <laughs> right? We got to love them just like we love each other. Bring them in. Show them that love. Be that weird person. Like, why are they so nice to me? <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much, Willie. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate um, I want to close in prayer, but I just want. Um, for those of us, maybe you're want, you're coming in here and you're just like, this is a weird sermon because I don't, I'm not Christian. And, uh, why are they talking about this? You know, the cool thing is like all of us, God found all of us here, um, invited us into his family. And he did that through someone else. 
There's not someone, anyone here that wasn't invited to his family without another person being involved. And that's how he chose to do it with this 12. And, and this morning, like, he wants to send that invitation to all of us. Maybe some of us never knew him, kind of grew up like Willie, but you kind of found yourself here and you're wondering why. And others of you might be here and, and it's been a long time since you prayed. But the way that God feels about us is like a dad who loses his son or loses his daughter and he's just wanting us home. And he spends all of history searching for us. And I hope that today, for some of us, we would say, man, I want to come home and I want to be with my, my dad again. And then I think for others of us, I love what Willie shared because after he experienced God, he couldn't help, you know, I see him at the beach handing out bracelets, talking to his roommate. Um, there's a sense of like, we are found to find others. And that's what the disciples experience, right? Jesus says, come follow me. And what he, they experience is this master teacher teaching them how to be fishers of men like Jesus was. And what does it look like to realign our life to that call? God, we just come to you this morning and we think about the best father in the, in the universe, you know? We have these great, some of us have these great earthly fathers, but really they're just a picture of, of you who love us, who love us with this really different kind of love that you long for us and you want us with you. I pray, Lord, that for those of us who don't know you, that maybe today we could experience your love and your call to come home. You loved us so much that you were willing to die on the cross for our sins. You were willing to come to earth and, and search for the worst of us and invite us home. And for those of us who do know you, who've walked with you for a while, I pray that we would be about what you're about, Jesus. That's what you invite the disciples into, that, that they would be about what you're about. And you're about um, finding people and bringing them back into your family. And I hope, Lord, that we would be about that too, that as we go this week to places we work and play, that we would proclaim your gospel, that we would desire for people to be healed, to be delivered, and to find you. We love you so much. We're grateful for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.